Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new, much-anticipated release, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry by poet Nikki Finney. This minglement of poems, observations, fictions, and treasured artifacts is Finney's first book since Head Off and Split, winner of the National Book Award for Poetry. Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry is available wherever books are sold. Speaking of poetry, in celebration of Poetry Month this April, Tin House invites you to pause for poetry. Watch and listen on the Tin House social media channels as writers share some of their favorite poems in a minute or less at hashtag pause for poetry. Finally, I want to remind everyone that Tin House will be donating all of its online sales for the month of April to the Powell's Bookstore Employees Worker Relief Fund, which has been set up through their local union. Hundreds of Powell's employees have been laid off due to the pandemic without a safety net to catch them. So pick up a Tin House t-shirt, a tote bag, or some back issues of the Tin House magazine and support the dedicated booksellers who, for now, can no longer sell you books. If you'd rather donate to the fund directly, you can do so at ilwulocal5.com, five the number, not the word. And if you choose to donate this way and then email your donation receipt to Tin House at the email address workshop at tinhouse.com, you'll receive a Tin House surprise swag bag in return. Links to all of this can be found at the Tin House website. Today's episode of Tin House Live is a talk given by Ingrid Rojas Contreras at the 2019 Tin House Summer Workshop called Power and Audience on Not Writing for White People. Ingrid Rojas Contreras is the author of the novel Fruit of the Drunken Tree, a silver medal winner for the first fiction at the California Book Awards and a New York Times editor's choice. And as you'll learn during this talk, she is now working on a family memoir about her grandfather, a curandero from Colombia. Her lecture was one of the high points of the workshop last year and definitely one of the most discussed. In her early part of this craft talk, she shows some graphs from the latest publishing industry survey about representation within the publishing industry. Seeing this representation, or lack thereof, broken out by race and gender and sexual orientation and ability, showing what executive boards look like, what editorial looks like, what book reviewers look like, had a huge impact on people in the audience. So I'll be putting links to these graphs and the survey and her recent essay called There's Nothing Thrilling About Trauma up on the page for this episode at the Tin House Archive online, as well as in my email to supporters at Patreon, which I'll make publicly accessible at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now, without further ado, here is Ingrid Rojas Contreras on Power and Audience. So thank you so much for being here. I'm, I'm so excited to be here and so excited to be talking about this to all of you. Um, I'm going to be talking about audience and power um, and not writing for white people. And what I, but by, what I mean by that is not writing for the white gaze, is what I mean. Um, I think it's a situation that a lot of writers of color, writers who have, are otherwise othered, uh, find themselves in. Um, and I, 
for myself I and for for you I just wanted to take apart what that interaction is like what happens uh, in your daily lives and how does that show up uh, when you sit down to write so the things that I had to say about it I, I found were so kind of like nuanced that I ended up typing it out because um, I don't I just don't want to make a mistake in in not getting the point across that I that I wanted. Um, so I'm going to be I'm going to be reading from my notes. Um, so before we start, I want to start us off. Yeah, that's working. I want to start us off with this uh, Toni Morrison quote that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and to me, uh, this this quote is is talking about the ideal conditions of being a writer. So. For our sake and yours, forget your name in the street. Tell us what the world has been to you in the dark places and the light. This is from uh, Morrison's novel, Prize Acceptance Speech. Um, have, have you all read the, the speech? I don't know if nobody, some, some of you. Um, it's, a, it's a speech that's uh, on the meditation on language and power. Um, and she focuses a lot on how the powers that be um, in their effort to maintain their own exclusivity and dominance uh, kill language. Um, it's a beautiful speech, so I, if you haven't read it, um, you sh I, I invite you to read it. Um, but the, the quote, this quote is, is part of the speech where it becomes like a call to, to keep language alive. Um, and for me, um, this quote, for our sake and yours, forget your name in the street. Tell us what the world has been to you in the dark places and the light. I think this is the, the ideal condition of being a writer. Um, and it also encapsulates what's so hard about being a writer. So, you know, to begin with, when you sit down to write, how are you supposed to forget your name? Right, how does that happen? Um, I think we've, we've all been in that moment when we're writing and we get to a place where somehow we forget that we have a body and we become nameless and shapeless and for some glorious seconds, I, and I hope like hours and hours, um, you, you are in that space and then hunger or discomfort or your phone rings or someone knocks on the door and then you're jarred back into reality. And then there's that, the second thing that she's calling us to do. So after you've managed to arrive to this place where you don't have a name, and you enter this kind of hermetic focus, then you, so you who are like wrestling to remain rooted in namelessness, then you are charged with telling about what the world has been to you in the dark places and the light. So I think what, uh, Toni Morrison is describing here is that moment when you can become a conduit. Um, and sometimes it can feel that way. Like the story comes and then runs through you. Um, and the, the you with a name is nowhere to be seen. And it's, you just kind of feel like a blob of consciousness. And the, the thing that I, that I want to kind of zero in on is that uh, having no name or forgetting your name uh, means that you are free to, to write this story. 
I think we dream of this moment, all of us as, as writers, and I think we have all at some point felt it. Um, just effortless writing, you're before your, your page and you, you forget that you're there. It's just the story and it's the words and you're almost not present. And I think even as, as hard as it is to get there, um, that's why we, we the, the feeling of that is so captivating and enchanting. I think that's why we return to the page no matter how hard it can get. Um, so all of this is hard, but so it's, it's easier to forget your name when your name or when who you are is not a battleground for power. So what happens when you are a battleground for power? Uh, what of us who are marked as other? How are we supposed to forget the battlegrounds that we become on a daily basis? So I, I, I want to touch on power and powerlessness as it pertains to writing and what I call internal audience, or what Rebecca called earlier this week, ideal narrative audience, um, which is the audience that you as a writer conjure up or imagine as a group of people you wish you were telling your story to. So I'm, I'm just going to just keep saying internal audience because that's how I call it. <laughs> um, and maybe it's just easier for me to say that. Um, so there's, there's a unique situation uh, for writers of color and uh, writers who are othered. Uh, for us, when we tell our stories, even if we wish to only imagine our communities as, as our ideal narrative audience, um, because we are made aware of who the gatekeepers of the publishing industry tend to be, and because we are constantly uh, made aware of what the gate is, um, this messes with our sense of internal audience. So even if we wanted to say, I am only going to tell my, my story to my community, um, the concern is then if, if the editors all tend to be white, then um, how do you include that audience? So it starts to kind of mess with, your, with what you want to do. So... I thought we would look at some graphs at this point. Um, so this is from a survey done by Lee and Lee of 34 publishers and eight review journals in 2015. And this is the publishing industry overall. So you can read what the majority um, makeup of the industry is by reading across these pie charts. So white, uh, cis women, straight, um, non-disabled. And that's 79%, 78, 88, 92. This is the executive level in the publishing industry. 86, 59 cis women, 40 cis men. 89 straight, 96 non-disabled. Editorial department. These start to look very similar, right? Sales department, so these are who decides how your story is going to, to be sold and how it can be sold and how it should, we should go about doing that. This is the marketing and publicity department. And these are book reviewers. 
I feel like we can just go back and forth and see, like, spot the difference. Like, are these changing, actually? <laughs> like, right? Like, they're, they're not changing. <laughs> so, so it can begin to seem that if we want our work to see the light of day, that we, we have to include this audience, white, female, straight, able-bodied. So for us, in this way, internal audience can kind of become a specter that clouds us from seeing the work we want to write and diverts us toward the work we believe we should write. Uh, so I, I pay a lot of attention to, to the daily exchanges of language. English is not my first language, um, and so sometimes I am between languages and I hear things twice. I hear things in English and then Spanish or vice versa. Um, so it, it just makes me be super attentive to what is actually going on on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so I've noticed when we are marked as other, we adopt many ways of speaking. In the ordinary exchange in our daily lives, when we are called to explain our sexuality, clarify our gender, say where we're from, when we're asked to reveal the provenance of our skin or our accent, when we're asked to build and provide a context for ourselves before we are allowed to be. Sometimes we adopt the voice of silence, hiding our difference. Other times we stew in anger or we refuse to answer, or we answer in a scalding manner as possible. Other times we sound like an encyclopedia. I have heard myself say, Colombia is the northernmost country in South America with coastlines on both the Pacific and the Atlantic and a population of 45 million. I have heard myself say, I can't answer this question, this feels super racist. And I have witnessed myself in the middle of explaining the most trivial cultural detail for example, the tidbit that people from Bogota are known as rolos, and I have heard myself roll my R extravagantly, because I can. <laughs> and in the wake of it, I have wondered why was I performing that and for whom? I know what the language pitfalls are. I have fallen into each one in different ways. And somehow, I still manage to fall down these holes, these pitfalls of language. I once thought that the language that arises from these quotidian corners of power and powerlessness were never to come into my writing. I thought there was a clear demarcation between who I was as a person in the world and who I was on the page that whatever language territory I lost or gave up in the pedestrian scuffles of the real world, it did not transfer to the kinds of territory I could build myself for myself on the page. Instead, the white gaze can be something that descends on my writing as crows descend on a feast. Then I can find myself writing and rewriting the same few sentences in a story flinging the birds off my material left and right. Why does that happen? Why us? Because the language territory of power and powerlessness we encounter as writers in our daily lives 
bleeds into how we interact with our internal audience, if that internal audience is experienced as adversary. So um, these, these reactions that I was hearing myself having, um, if in my internal audience I also have to include the white gaze, then on the page I would start to have those same reactions just by building the story. Our sense, for us, our sense of internal audience is a battleground. Because we have been told over and over again, our story is not relatable, our characters are not relatable, their identity doesn't make sense, our characters' names are difficult to pronounce, difficult to remember, and there's too many of them, the geography is confusing, the customs are confusing. How many of you have heard something like that? This is, by the way, how the white gaze speaks about that which it does not know. The white gaze cannot bear to be excluded for a second. The white gaze needs foreign words italicized. It needs maps to go along with a fiction book. It needs a glossary. It needs us to be tour guides in the world of our stories. It might be easy to dismiss questionable comments from workshop, but what happens when we perceive those same questions to come from the gatekeepers? Is the possibility even there for us when we sit down to write, to forget our name, when we know that we have to make room in our internal audience for the white gaze? These nearly subliminal and overt interactions with power are the reason why we fall into thinking that ours is a triple labor, that we must not only, one, craft a story, two, build a context around that story, and three, serve as tour guide to that story. So it's not out of nowhere that those of us marked as other have trouble forgetting our names in the street. Forget your name in the street. We bump against the street every day. The makeup of the publishing industry, the quotidian battlegrounds of language. It bruises us, gets into our head, under our skin. What's more, the street I'm talking about, it's system systemic and resilient, and it also happens to be invisible to the people holding nearly all the positions of power in publishing. So that's, those are all the ways in which I can think that language and our real lives interfere with our writing when we sit down to write. Um, so I want to tell you now about what finally made it possible for me to forget my name in the street in the, ho in the hopes that it can lead you to a place where you can forget yours. Um, I have, for some time, been writing my second book. It is a memoir about my maternal grandfather, a curandero or faith healer who, who it was said had the power to move clouds. I always knew I wanted to tell this story, but I never did. I used to keep this story segregated to the Spanish. I loved this story so much, I never wanted to expose it to the violence of what the white gaze could do. But then I had a bike accident. I lost my memory for eight weeks. I loved not having a memory and not having an identity. 
It was a pure experience of being. I felt unadulterated joy. Then my memory returned bit by bit. At first it came in the form of small scenes, the gesture in a dark bar of laughing. I mean, excuse me, cackling. As a South American, I can only either polite laugh or cackle. <laughs> then I remembered my name as something inherent to me and not something I had to memorize by rote. The last thing, the very last thing I remembered was my family's story. My grandfather who could move clouds, my mother who it is said could appear in two places at once. And it returned to me without the accompanying worry or internalized shame. I no longer cared what the white gaze would threaten to do to this story. And I could not remember why I cared. I felt a deep grounded ecstasy that can only come from living in your truth. And so, at a party, overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge at, at San Francisco, as the sun was setting, in response to the dreaded what do you do question, I told the white woman decked in Lululemon, drinking for some reason champagne, that I was a writer. I told her I was working on a memoir and I told her that it was about my grandfather who could move clouds. I remember that the woman blinked at me, that she inclined her head to his side, that she said in a pitying voice, oh. She extended her champagne flute free hand to me, which thankfully I hesitated to take. And she said, come, come here to the cliff. I'm a park ranger. Let me explain to you how wind works. <laughs> Let me explain to you how wind works. <laughs> it all came back to me in a moment. The reason why for so many years, after coming to the United States, I had kept this part of my life hidden from everyone in my life who was not South American even my closest friends, and even my husband. I did not want to witness the violence that would descend on the story if I offered it up. This was on an epic level, me, adopting the language of silence, hiding my difference, protecting the story which I loved more than anything, and I wanted to protect from the crows. But this exchange, with me and the woman, it did not cause me to be silent. Instead, I got angry. I walked away from the woman who was still extending her champagne flute-free hand to me, still tilting her head, and I walked in a huff into a circle of people of color and interrupted a conversation to say, you won't believe this shit that just happened to me. <laughs> I am happy to report that we spent the rest of the party complaining about white people's infractions, <laughs> that we mocked said infractions, that we laughed and bonded, that I went home to my husband and said, did I ever tell you that my grandfather was a faith healer who people said could move clouds? You understand, right, why I would tell him last. If he had reacted in any way like the woman on the cliff, I would have had to divorce him. <laughs> and at that moment, um, 
if he responded in the wrong way, I felt like I could be okay with divorce. I told my family's story to so many South Americans who without a beat responded with stories of their own about a tia who could see when someone was going to die because a black veil appeared before the person's face, about living with ghosts, about a ha house haunted with the sound of fallen coins. Of course, my husband could not respond in this way, even though deep down that's what I wanted. He could only repeat, bewildered, what? And why didn't you tell me before? I didn't know what to say. I told him a story about the day when I first arrived to the US. So I want to take a moment to acknowledge to those of you keeping track of the structure of this craft talk that, yes, this was a craft talk turned into a story, and now it's a story within a story. So I told my husband that after I first arrived to the US, a Midwestern woman picked me up from the Richmond airport to take me to a friend's house in Williamsburg, Virginia, where I was staying. I only remember the woman's eyes now, green and shrewd, trained on me as we drove by the impossibly clean rural landscape between Richmond and Williamsburg. I was 17 and I had never seen so much widespread wealth. Statuesque houses with tall steeples sat in ample land hemmed in by perfect rectangular hedges. The hedges, it's such an American thing. I wanted to express awe, but I was aware of the woman's eyes on me, straining, waiting to discover something on my face. So I did the opposite of what I felt. I glanced at each passing luxury with disinterest. The twin lions, the bubbling fountains, the manicured gardens, as if I had belonged in this luxury, this safety, this ordered landscape all my life. The woman seemed satisfied and she reclined in her seat and said, just last week I picked up a girl who was coming from El Salvador and this girl, you can't imagine, she just couldn't stop ogling at the houses. She thought they were mansions. And I thought, you think these are mansions? These are just our regular houses. I mean, where did this girl come from? I inhaled, ready to respond. Then I kept my words. I turned to my window. I understood in that moment that the story of where the Salvadorian girl came from, or where I came from, was not a story meant for this woman. This woman with her derision, the grape sweep of her ignorance, the obliviousness of her privilege. Because that story, when told to her, would only turn into accusation. This was a story meant for immigrants and the scores of people marked as other, and when I told it, I would be sure to include the woman with green eyes. The woman with green eyes was now an integral part of the story. She was a quintessential part of experiencing the border, of crossing and being caught between states of becoming. As I reached this conclusion, my husband stared. Okay, so now we're outside of the story within a story. 
What are you saying, he said, that I'm like that woman? What was I saying? After some time, I told him, what I'm saying is that I, I don't owe you this story or any other. I'm saying maybe you needed to earn it, or maybe I needed to get to a place where I felt safe telling you. We were quiet for so long, I lost count of how many seconds were elapsing. He finally rubbed my knee, said, okay, carried me to a chair, served me wine, and made me dinner. So this is the correct response, and this is why I didn't divorce him. <laughs> when I showed up to the page the next day, I knew that who you imagine as your ideal narrative audience is the first political decision you can make as a writer. I knew that for me, I had to build a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder ideal narrative audience made up of people of color, of immigrants, of people marked as other, and that the white gaze belonged way on the outside, way in the back, so that I could barely see or hear or register its demands. Though I will say that while I'm still, I'm still debating whether the white gaze belongs there in my ideal narrative audience at all. In order to forget my name before the page, I had to imagine the people my story was actually meant for. And I had to lose my fear of exclusion and judgment. Simple, right? Just lose your fear of excluding the publishing industry, lose your fear of being judged. How do you shut out the world? You can do as Leslie Marmon Silko does, or as she described to a room full of us who were studying with her at Macondo. She said that on writing days, she went to her writing room, which I think she said was down a few steps from the rest of her house, or maybe it was outside, but in any case, she described it as a bunker. I go into my bunker, she said. It was a place where she felt physically unreachable and felt physically underground. Then, for good measure, she put on the biggest noise-canceling headphones, like helicopter headphones, I remember her saying. And having blocked the noise of the world in two ways, she got down to the labor of writing. I can attest to the power of noise-canceling headphones. They provide a very real way of escaping physically your surroundings. Then all one needs is a metaphor. Leslie called her space a bunker. I call mine a castle. I'm going into my castle now, I announced to no one, to my cat, to my husband before heading off to write. I have a writing room now, but before, I placed over my head and shoulders a blanket. I needed that feeling of being hidden and unseen and unreachable. Sometimes I think like if somebody made a movie about this, like, or what writers look like when they're, <laughs> that would be my scene, it's just like, um, with all of these, there are days in which the crows still come. For me, since I am writing in English, which is not my first tongue, but my second tongue, because this is already a territory of uh, adversarial territory, every day I slip and lose sight of my audience. 
It all starts when I begin to sound too much like an encyclopedia. Suddenly, there's too many things to explain. The details, the geography, the culture. And then I find myself lost, trying to please that northern desire to pin everything down with bouts of anesthetics and empirical logic. And then the writing takes the form of that unnecessary slant, foreign. But knowing what the crows are, how and why they function, what their provenance is, this is also power. So I name it. I bring myself back. I delete everything. I know there are writers who don't have to wrestle or face any of these problems when they sit down to write. I know that what is naturally given for them, we have to fight for. We have to struggle to attain and struggle to keep. That's the way it's always been. It's hard. We do it anyway. So I refocus. I remind myself that mine is not a triple labor, that I don't have to A, craft a story, B, build a context around that story, and C, be a tour guide of that context. I remind myself that mine is not a labor of social science, but art. I remind myself that I only have one job, one, and that is to tell the damn story. Then I bring myself back to imagining that I am telling the, the memoir to my people and people like me, because that's the only space where the story thrives, is free and unafraid. I imagine the face of my people, and I write speaking only to them, and for them I tell the story again. I type it all again. To end, I want to go back to this Toni Morrison quote from the beginning. For our sake and yours, forget your name in the street. Tell us what the world has been to you in the dark places and the light. How do you do it? I believe Leslie Marmon Selko implied it best. To forget your name in the street, you must possess a bunker. To tell what the world has been to you, you who are nameless, in the dark places and the light, you need to stopper your ears until there is only the ringing buzz of your mind. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tin House Live. Don't forget to check out Ingrid Rojas Contreras' essay at The Cut called There Is Nothing Thrilling About Trauma and her novel Fruit of the Drunken Tree. And until next time, remember to pause for poetry during Poetry Month and to support writers and artists and booksellers and bookstores through initiatives like the Powell's Employee Worker Relief Fund. And whether you're a new listener or a longtime listener of Between the Covers, if you value this endeavor and are interested in finding out how to support the podcast and what Tin House has to offer if you do, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Valla and Jeremy Cruz in the art department, Ishwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops, for helping make the podcast run smoothly. 
Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's Trove, Ukulele Covers, can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.